Well, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together. My name's Clint, and Tony and I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Andrew Bailey and Bradley Rettler. Uh, Andrew is an associate professor at Yale NUS College in Singapore, and Bradley Rettler is assistant professor of philosophy at University of Wyoming. And the two of them, along with their colleague Craig Warmke, have formed a research collective called Resistance Money. And they are all about trying to understand and evaluate the current phenomenon of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and all the rest of it. Uh, and so in this conversation, we get into big questions like, what is Bitcoin? How does it work? Uh, is it money? How does it compare to other forms of currency? And then is it good? And a bunch of other frequently asked questions. I have been wondering about Bitcoin for a while, uh, for years now, and just couldn't really quite get a handhold running into these guys and reconnecting with them. Uh, just really opened my eyes to some important questions surrounding it, some ethical questions, and gave me a better understanding of, of what it's about and just what, what to make of it. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy this conversation. And without further ado, I bring you Andrew and Brad. All right, Andrew and Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Good for having me here. So our listeners would have just heard your interest in Bitcoin, and you guys have started this research initiative. And just at the outset, I mean, a lot of times we talk about the Bible and theology and other philosophical topics on here. So someone might be wondering, okay, why why are you talking about Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. And one reason I find it interesting is it just seems really philosophically rich. Uh, it's interdisciplinary. So it's one of these rare topics where a lot of different disciplines are coming to the fore, like ethics, morality, philosophy, economics, politics, computer science, maybe psychology. There's probably a few others you could mm -hmm. lump in there. Hmm. So it's just this really neat intersection of all those. And at the same time, that very fact gives me quite a bit of trepidation about it. I'm afraid to say something stupid. You feel like you don't understand it <laughs> very well, much at all. Well, I'm just not an expert in any of those. Maybe yeah, philosophy, sure. but sure. Yeah. No, that's definitely how I feel as well. I Here's my situation, just so you boys know, heading into this conversation. I have some cryptocurrency. You are an owner. I am an owner. But I don't feel like I understand it okay. like you would want to if you own something, mm. you know? <laughs> so I'm hoping to walk out of this conversation at least understanding what I've done. Yeah, and I guess for our <laughs> listeners to maybe adjudicate the question, should I yeah. buy it? Is, it? is it good for me to own it or not? Yeah. And part of that would mean understanding what it is and yeah. the rest of it, so... Yeah. yeah, we'll we'll do better on the what it is than the should I buy some. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll let you let you decide that. So I guess to start us off, what sparked your guys' interest in this topic? Like just kind of the brief story of what brings you to this moment in your professional careers of researching this. Uh, back in 2013, m middle to late 2013, one of our colleagues in graduate school got really involved in in Bitcoin, learning about it, not not as a research project, but just as, as sort of a side interest and was talking to me a bunch about it and the promises um, that it made and what he thought that it could do in the future. And 
so I did some some research on my own, and the first thing I thought of. So he, what he told me is it's a it's a peer to peer natively digital currency that you can send anywhere for a few pennies. Mm. And I grew up for a few years in Singapore, and I remember going to the mall and watching people line up to send money internationally at Western Union. Really? And I remember how much it cost. Mm. And I thought to myself, they could do this for just a few pennies. This is the future of international remittances. And so um, that was mm. my initial reaction to Bitcoin was thinking that this was the role that it was going to play. And so I got some just on, on that basis. And then I kind of forgot about it for a long time, except for shortly after buying it, telling Andrew um, that I had bought it. And then I did what Brad told me to do. I got some myself. <laughs> so are you guys millionaires now that it's worth like 56,000 at the time of recording? Well, <laughs> no. Did, did <laughs> you make out big? Okay. In, in order, so even though Bitcoin was much cheaper at that point, it, you, it still cost money to buy. <laughs> and oh, my okay. salary was yeah. $15,000 a year, I think. Sure. So no, I couldn't, I couldn't afford to buy very much. And, you know, at the time it was still largely untested. It was, it was very risky. Um, you were never sure whether someone was going to be able to hack it or, um, you yeah. know, I, I didn't know nearly as much at the time as, as I knew now. And like I said, it wasn't, it didn't become a research interest until many years later. So I I didn't do much learning about it beyond this initial uh, very small <laughs> investment. Yeah, Clint, could I, could you, I, pick up, I, I want to pick up on something you said at the intro, which is that uh, this really resonated with me. You described this as an intersectional topic that is therefore impossible, but also for that very reason, fascinating. And you said, "Well, I'm not an expert here," and, and I would agree with that and say, "Well, no one's an expert." No one is actually an expert at all of the requisite disciplines at computer science and economics and psychology and the normative questions from philosophy to bear on this. And that is very alluring for a curious person. We're tempted to take the risk of opining about things that are complicated and difficult. So, so I see this as a place with great promise intellectually, but also deep risks. And uh, one, one metaphor from a philosopher, Nathan Valentine, that I find really helpful is the idea of epistemic trespassing. The thought there is that each of us has our own epistemic zone, areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And we're tempted always to trespass, to walk into someone else's zone. Totally. And I think that's basically inevitable when you're talking about Bitcoin. You're doing some epistemic trespassing. And the question is, can we do it responsibly? Can we, uh, can we get away with this? It's, yeah, I feel it's, not uh, even it's so tempting. We, we have to, right? It's, it's, it's too big to ignore. So I, I just feel like utterly fascinating that that problem right there. Mm -hmm. I feel like this whole podcast is one big <laughs> epistemic <laughs> trespassing romp mm. around all the various disciplines. You, like I you left your home long ago. I admitted very early on in this project, I'm no expert on anything. So I'm along for the ride, just yeah. <laughs> exploring. We're trying day. to learn. We're learning right. together. Yeah. Stay curious. That's what we say. Mm -hmm. And I am curious. So can we dive mm -hmm. into understanding what it is? Yeah. Let's just yeah. What is it? What do we what do we got here? When I buy Bitcoin, what have I what have I purchased? You've acquired the right to update the Bitcoin ledger, which you can think of as a giant spreadsheet that records which addresses or which locations in the ledger have which amounts of Bitcoin. And you can think of that 
spreadsheet as sometimes increasing on a one given cell and sometimes decreasing. And when you own Bitcoin, you have the right to make your cell go down and to make another cell go up as you add to its value. So fundamentally, mm -hmm. just in terms of the computer science, that's what you have. The right, maybe right is the right word because that's a legal concept. Uh, perhaps the ability to update the ledger because you have the password to your cell, which you can mm -hmm. use to send the Bitcoin in your cell to a different cell in the spreadsheet. So there's, there's one intuitive metaphor that I found helpful is that Bitcoin is this ledger, a giant spreadsheet, and then mm -hmm. to own Bitcoin is to have the ability to update the ledger. Brad, uh, I think uh, you, you might describe it a little differently though. Um, I think of it, that, that's a, a good metaphor, especially if you think of, of yourself as having various passwords that are required to be able to unlock the amounts in various cells. So it's not just one cell that you can um, control mm -hmm. the value of, but it's as many cells as you have the password to. And you can get arbitrarily many passwords to arbitrarily many cells, um, but most of them won't have anything in them <laughs> um, because there are as many cells on the, the spreadsheet as there are stars in the sky. And so really the only way to get some is to purchase it and then send it to one of those cells where you have oh, the no password. kidding. Okay. No. I, also, I can all, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just, I want to jump in there. Maybe it doesn't fit this analogy, but where does mining come in? Oh. In terms of, are we adding cells to the ledger there or are we getting new passwords to cells that happen to have money in them? I mean, the, the image of mining is like you're plowing through a bunch of stuff you don't want to find something you do want. And right. then you have it. So what are yeah. we mining? So uh, that's a great question. So the mining isn't normally when you think about mining um, in gold or something, you're you're digging around to discover yeah. the gold. That's right. um, when you're mining Bitcoin, you are not discovering new Bitcoin. What you are is discovering the answer to a computer intensive math problem. And then when you get that answer, you specify an address um, to which you want new Bitcoin to be sent. Mm -hmm. So you're not discovering, it's not like the Bitcoin is hidden somewhere. It, it's created mm -hmm. out of nothing. And when you discover the answer to this math problem, you broadcast that you've discovered the answer to all the um, participants on the Bitcoin network. And in that broadcast, you also tell the network where to send new Bitcoin to. And it's an address to which you already have the private key or the password. Hmm. So we could talk maybe for, in case your listeners know even less than you profess to know, we could talk about the, the three different roles in the, the Bitcoin ecosystem that might be, yeah, that'd be helpful. helpful please. They may feel like they've just been thrown into the deep end with this, this yes. mining discussion. So there are three, I do, I do feel are, it. <laughs> you asked it and you and I asked it. <laughs> there are three participants or three kinds of participants in the Bitcoin network. You have miners, which we've talked about, you have nodes and you have users. Um, so users are, you know, what what you may eventually become or or what you already are if the cryptocurrency that you own is Bitcoin. Um, and that is someone who has some private keys that, that controls some Bitcoin. Um, and what users do is they transact in Bitcoin. So they buy some, they send some to people, they send some to the, you know, back and forth from their own addresses. And you can think of Bitcoin addresses like email addresses. You can have multiple email addresses. You can send emails back and forth to yourself. 
Um, maybe one of your email addresses like storage only, you never reply from it. One of your addresses you send back and forth. And so you can think of Bitcoin addresses kind of like that. Um, okay. But then the Bitcoin network also has these other two things, which are nodes and miners. Uh, Bitcoin was invented to solve the problem of spending digital currency. So any other th digital thing that you have, a Word document, a PDF, a music file, a picture, you can copy it and you have yep. something that's indistinguishable from the first one. So if you had a $5, a digital $5 bill, it would be really bad if you could copy it as many times sure. as you wanted and send it on. Yeah. Um, yeah. That monetary system would not work for very long. And so Bitcoin um, developed this distributed ledger that Andrew was talking about, um, which they call the blockchain, as a way that's of what tracking. Blockchain is. I've heard that word, yeah. blockchain. A buzzword. That is the ledger. You picked up on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a That's giant right. spreadsheet that updates every 10 minutes. Great. That's so helpful. Thank you. No problem. And and yeah. so what you what you have with the blockchain is everyone has an identical copy of the blockchain. And when you send the Bitcoin that you have from one address to another, um, you tell everyone on the network, I'm doing this. And then what the nodes do is they take that information and they say, well, do you, do you have the right to do this? And they check to make sure that you have the private key that's associated with the address that you want to send from. Um, if you do, step two is, is there any Bitcoin at that address? <laughs> if there's no Bitcoin, then you can't send any Bitcoin. Um, step three is to make sure that you haven't tried to spend that Bitcoin twice. So oh. if you say send $5, Andrew said that the ledger updates every 10 minutes. So what if two minutes apart, you try to send the Bitcoin at the address to two different places? Yeah. Um, the nodes will check and they'll make sure that there's still unspent Bitcoin at the address. If you've already broadcasted a transaction, then they'll just take whatever the earliest one is. Got and it. that's the one that succeeds. And that's the one then that the miners get and the miners assemble all these transactions into a block. And then when they get the answer to this math problem that they're feverishly working on, um, they broadcast the answer along with a block of transactions. Can and I jump in and ask one question? Sorry. Yeah, Real no, quick. go for it. So one question I've had about this process is, okay, suppose some farm whatever found the answer, so to speak. Who's checking to sh make sure it's the right answer? Or is that something that <laughs> yeah. is really obvious upon inspection? Like, oh, oh yeah, you solved it. It's 42. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that's that a, simple. That's probably, a great but... question. The answer is, so these these are math problems that are that you solve by trial and error in a way that is really... <laughs> that was always really, my strategy. <laughs> so it's, it's really resource intensive to get, right? Um, but then once you tell everyone what the answer is, they can just do one calculation to check that the answer is right. And so oh, every wow. node does that. Every wow, node so makes sure that you got the right answer. So it's kind if of a brute forcing like exactly. type of approach. That's exactly what just it is. trying different stuff over and over until you get something. Wow. Yeah, that's okay. the task of the miner. So it takes, yeah. it takes trillions of guesses to get it right and then one check to verify it. And these computers are right. Okay, so the computers aren't so much solving the problem as they are just just spitting out answers as quick as they can, seeing which one's the key to unlock. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is why it's using to... every resource available on the computer to just spit out answers as fast as it can. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Perhaps, perhaps an intuitive math example would help. If I asked you what seven primes can be multiplied to get number, and then I give you some long number, it would take you a long time to figure that out. Yeah. But if I said, if I gave you seven primes and claimed that they together could be multiplied to reach number n, you could just punch them in your calculator and uh, in less than a second, discover that what I said was correct. So that's an example of a one-way math problem that's very difficult to solve in one direction, but very, very easy to show that mm. a solution is correct in the other direction. And that's the structure of the math problem solved by miners. Fantastic. And other, so super, other super cheap to verify that they're correct. And all the nodes do that when they uh, broadcast the miners' work every 10 minutes with each new block. At the risk of sounding more foolish than I already have, who's who's creating the problems, the math problems? Is that an a computer that's doing that, or is somebody, some mad scientist in a lab spitting them out? How's that working? It's built into the code that every miner is running, and the mm. also the code that all the nodes run to check the miners' work, and. Right. I don't think it would be useful to go into further details about what the problem okay. is, yeah. but it, right. it's it's hard coded, and this is a very well understood process that uses off the shelf cryptography that was developed in the seventies and eighties. So it's not particularly fancy. But it's a very yeah. well understood piece of cryptography. Okay. Well, I won't derail us further. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, there are no so rails. We can do <laughs> what we like. <laughs> yeah. So those are the three. Um, are you saying that a just like I like a single person, Clint, can be a user? Can I be a node? Like that could be a role I play. Yeah. Yes, and and indeed, Clint, you should be if you own Bitcoin, oh. because this is your way to check the network to make sure that your Bitcoin is safe. So running your own node is like being your own bank that systematically every ten minutes your computer is checking to make sure nobody's cheated. So the more uh, the more Bitcoin you have, the more important it is for you to actually run your own node. Uh, which is just a, a, a small program on your computer that checks the ledger every 10 minutes and makes sure that nobody's cheated. So unless you're running a node, are you sort of out of sync with the rest of the ledger or there's there's a possibility for that? If you don't run your own node, you are trusting someone else to run a node for you. So for example, yeah, let's right. say you, you have Bitcoin and it's in your PayPal or your PayPal account. You You don't actually own the Bitcoin. PayPal owns it. They've given yeah. you an IOU for the Bitcoin, and they have a node on the network that presumably is checking things. Right. One of the beauties of Bitcoin is that you get to take possession, if you like, and actually verify everything yourself. So the right. mantra there is, don't trust, verify. Yeah, hmm. that's great. So, okay. I think that's a fair handle then on... Yeah, I feel what, way better about it. What, what it is. Yeah. Now... I think what would be really helpful, and just at least for me, and hopefully the audience, is can we compare this to other currencies and some of the similarities, differences, benefits, or maybe an easier way to ask it is, is, is this money? Is Bitcoin money? Yeah. In this this, in this a, is money. We call it money. You're holding, what are you holding? I have a quarter here. Okay. This is a piece of metal. Yeah. We call it money. Is Bitcoin mm -hmm. In the same category. Can it do the same stuff as that? Mm. Well, traditionally, money has filled three roles. Um, the first role is as a store of value. So when you um, have wealth and you want to keep having wealth, um, 
you store that value in something. Um, mm -hmm. Some things are very bad stores of value. For example, eggs. Um, yes. If you stored all your wealth in eggs, all your wealth would be gone in a couple of weeks. So you don't yep. want to do that. You want to store it in something that will hold its value reasonably well. Um, also, money as a medium of exchange. So it's something that you can trade back and forth with other people. Um, so if you say sell eggs, you will receive something back from that. Um, now, if you wanted, suppose what you wanted to do was buy a house and what you sold was eggs, that would be a lot of eggs. Mm -hmm. And probably yeah. whoever you're trying to buy the house from doesn't need that many eggs. <laughs> that would be very inconvenient yeah. for them, for you to give them the value of the house in eggs. So um, we've settled on using other things as proxies for value. And traditionally that's been things like seashells, gold, um, paper currencies backed by governments. And so the, the final thing money serves as is a, a unit of account. So yeah. you want to be able to compare the value of eggs with the value of a house. Eggs are worth, you know, 0.6 of this and a house is worth 200,000 of it, whatever that thing is. Um, so Bitcoin can, it's, it has numbers associated with it. So it can serve as a unit of account. We can talk about how many Bitcoin um, it can serve as a store of value in the sense that you can trade dollars for it and um, you or can, eggs. or eggs, <laughs> or uh, eggs. transact with it. Um, and you can send it to and from other people. So it seems to serve these three functions. Now, the one question is how well it does that. Mm -hmm. um, how well does it serve as a store of value? How well does it serve as a medium of exchange? And these get into practical questions about how much it costs to send it, um, how easy it is to store it, how well it retains its value across time and across space. And then you have to start comparing it with, with other offerings. So it mm -hmm. seems like it, it could be a money. It, it can fill these roles. And mm -hmm. then you want to start comparing it to other things that could fill these roles and see how well does Bitcoin do this compared to other things. And then there are, of course, other questions that you, you might have about what kind of money is the best money? For example, um, how easy is it to travel with? How easy is it for someone to take it from you? Um, and we could, we'd compare Bitcoin along these lines as well. Brad, I want to pick up on something you said. When describing money's roles, you gave various examples of money, seashells, gold, paper, and so on. And I, I think it's useful to, to look at those examples and to notice this. It's a highly contingent matter what we use as money. It's up to us, really. Mm -hmm. Maybe the the Vogue way of describing that is that money is socially constructed. That is, it's a decision we together make socially what to count as money. So in a prison, cigarettes might literally be money. That might be the way that you denominate your value, so it's your unit of account. It might be the way you exchange value, and it might be the way you store value. It really is money. And outside mm -hmm. of a prison, maybe not. So once you have that in view, I think it opens up this possibility of or this very good question. Well, what what should be our money? And, and there, it's not just a practical question of what is better at fulfilling these various roles. That's a kind of technical question. What is divisible? What is easily tradable? Mm -hmm. But also, well, th think about cigarettes. Should that be money? Well, if you think cigarettes are bad for people, that might be a reason to not use cigarettes as money. So there, there are normative questions that immediately come to bear once you reflect on this. 
uh, both the contingency of what we use as money, the fact that this is up to us, and also the obvious fact that some things look to be bad to be to, to be used as money. And you know, that invites this question, well, are there other things that are better? Suppose we had a cigarette-based economy. Could we make the world better by replacing it with a gold-based economy or with mm -hmm. something else? And Bitcoin, as I think of things, is an answer to that question that adds this extra little detail. Our world is increasingly digital. Should we adopt a digital native store of value, unit of account, medium of exchange? And Bitcoin invites us to think, well, maybe yes, and maybe this could be it. Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask, Bitcoin was first to the game, or at least it was the first crypto that had, you know, household name is that recognition. True? Is, that, is that the first? Oh, no, that had recognition, oh, okay. name recognition, I'm saying. Um, you just mentioned that it se you seem pretty optimistic. Correct me if I'm wrong. You seem pretty optimistic that this will be adopted widespread as a legitimate currency. Um, do you think that Bitcoin is the best or, or was it sort of it's just the most popular name we're familiar with? Are there benefits that other coins offer that Bitcoin doesn't? I think of Bitcoin in terms of optimism about adoption. Mm. If there is a case for optimism, it's about Bitcoin as a base settlement layer. Let, let me say what that means. That's a fancy term, perhaps. Some of you, uh, all of us maybe, have interacted with SWIFT or with the uh, Fedwire system. We wired money from one bank account to another. Yeah. That is a base settlement layer, fairly close to being a base settlement layer. It's the way that value is transferred from one bank to another. We don't interact with that system very often because it's cumbersome, it's high fees, it takes hours to settle, sometimes several business days, yeah. but it's extremely secure. Bitcoin is like that in some respects. It's, a, it's an extremely secure way to settle value because it's hard to reverse transactions once they've taken place in the blockchain. It's very, very difficult, very expensive computationally to cheat the system, nearly impossible after a few hours. On the other hand, like Swift, it's high fee. You have to pay the miners fees for them to update the blockchain for you. So if there's a case for Bitcoin adoption optimism, I think of it as Bitcoin as being a base settlement layer on top of which live other layers, just as Visa and credit card, small microtransactions with your Visa card live on top of the Fedwire system. Yeah, Bitcoin, right. has, Bitcoin has an analogy to that. It's called Lightning. It's a network that lives on top of Bitcoin that isn't quite as secure and isn't quite as well understood, but it's lightning fast, less than a second, and it's virtually free to transfer Bitcoins via lightning. So that's great for buying coffee. Bitcoin at the base level is not good for buying coffee. You'll pay $10 in transaction fees. Lightning yeah, right. Really free. So as I think of things, if, if we're trying to assess Bitcoin as money, we have to think, well, what kind of money would it be? I would think of it as being a base settlement layer money, not as buy your coffee with this stuff money. Right, but uh, you, you've opened up a big can of worms. Uh, well, what about other cryptocurrencies? Maybe Brad, you want to uh, take us to a, a few more precise questions within that subgenre. Yeah, I think there are there are two distinct kinds of questions that you can ask when you're comparing Bitcoin to other cryptocurrencies. One of them is, do any of them have features that are desirable for money to have that Bitcoin doesn't have? And then question two, um, even if they don't, might we want to use one of them instead anyway, for some reason. Um, so Bitcoin was the first 
um, cryptographically secured blockchain-based digital currency. Um, now there are thousands. Um, it's very easy to make your own. Um, Bitcoin is distinguished by a few of its features. Um, so when, when we talk about Bitcoin's features, we talk about privacy, we talk about censorship resistance, and we talk about the monetary policy. Um, so privacy, we've sort of already touched on, but Bitcoin is sent to and from public addresses, not from people's names. So it's private in the sense that um, nobody knows you have the Bitcoin unless you've had to divulge your name or social security number or something in order to acquire it. Um, it's censorship resistant in that nobody can prevent you from transacting on the Bitcoin network. Um, no matter what you want to buy or what you who you want to send it to, um, nobody can step in and stop you from doing that. And then the mont monetary policy is that there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. And the, the supply of new Bitcoin has been known from the very beginning, exactly how many there will be at exactly what time. Because as Andrew said earlier, every 10 minutes, there's a new block and the block reward it has schedule has been laid out since the beginning. At first, it was 50 Bitcoin that lasted for four years. Then it was halved. Then it was halved again. So now at every block, there are 6.25 new Bitcoin that are created. That will get halved again and so on. So one of the interesting features of Bitcoin as a money is this monetary policy. Every government-backed money um, is controlled by the central bank of that government. Mm -hmm. So we get new U.S. dollars when the Federal Reserve decides that we should have new U.S. dollars, and we get as many new U.S. dollars as they decide that there should be. Um, we don't know what they'll decide next year. We don't know how many U.S. dollars there will be next year. We know how many Bitcoin there will be next year. If you, if you give me a date, I could tell you exactly how many Bitcoin will be in circulation on that date. Wow, that's so, so different. That's got to have really massive implications, right? Yes. Most people think so. Yeah. So while most... Right, right, can I make one addition to what you said? You said we don't know how many dollars the Fed will create. I think we do know this much. The answer is more. Right. Yeah, yeah someone's destroyed. All, all government-backed currencies are designed to um, inflate over time. So this is to incentivize the taking out of debt by which people can build businesses, companies, add value to the world. Um, so when, you're, when the money that you get today from somewhere else, it's going to cost you less to pay it back, then you may as well take it. Um, so okay. these are inflationary currencies. They're designed to lose about 2% of value per year. This is the target inflation rate for most central banks. Um, Bitcoin is inflationary in the sense that new Bitcoin are being added, but deflationary in the sense that um, there will never be more than 21 million and people will lose their passwords, will lose their private keys, will lose the ability to transact with parts of the, the Bitcoin that are out there. So every, I don't know how often this happens, because um, people don't like to say when, they, when they've lost their private keys. Um, but at least once every day, some Bitcoin is transferred to an address that will never again be transferred out because 
either the person Whoa, put in yeah, the wrong I address never thought about that. or they, they lost their password. And as Andrew pointed out, this is a base settlement layer. There is no one that you can go to and say, hey, I made a mistake. Can you give me my Bitcoin back? Um, nobody can give you the Bitcoin back because nobody has it. That is, that's crazy. Yeah, I'm just kind of reeling I, from that. Okay. I, I feel like we've, we've yeah. jumped into one element of comparison, which is Bitcoin compared to government-backed paper currencies. But another part of your question, Clint, was, well, how do we think about Bitcoin compared to other cryptocurrencies, which are also digital native and which have many of the same cryptographic features of Bitcoin. Here's here's one thing that has kept Bitcoiners, and maybe maybe one way to think about this question is just say, well, well, why is Bitcoin so much more valuable than all the others? When you look at a chart of mm -hmm. a bunch of cryptocurrencies, you'll Elon see Bitcoin Musk. at the top, and it's always been at the top. And the question is, why? Very good question. Here's one thing I think that's been active in many people's minds. There's a There's a... A collective action problem we want to solve. You don't want to be the guy holding the crypto that nobody else wants. You want to hold the crypto that everybody wants. Yeah. It's called a network effect. Once your friends are already on a given network, that's the network you want to be on. So think about Facebook. Would you join some other network like uh, Weeple or Meeple or something? I, I, don't, I don't even know what these other alternatives are. And, and, and you know why I don't know that. It's because none of my friends are on there. I don't want to jump ship. So Bitcoin is kind of like that in the way it's managed to capture this monetary network. Once enough people are on it, the cost of leaving is high. So we, we can talk about technical features of Bitcoin versus other cryptocurrencies, but I think the, the social feature that has mm. proven to be alluring in an ongoing way is just the fact that it was the first and that it has been adopted by so many. Yeah. It's literally a trillion dollar network at the time we speak. And if uh, it, it makes sense that you would want to join the trillion dollar club rather than join the hundred billion dollar club and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that, that stands to reason. Uh, I want to jump back to Brad, this point about, I'm just, this blows my mind, dude. The 21 million total, that's... That's the most amount of Bitcoin that will ever be. That's the cap, right? Yeah. And some of it's lost just from people losing passwords for whatever reason or the keys. I'm wondering, what does this mean when, like we talked about the, the feature of a government-backed currency being inflationary. Does that mean that Bitcoin is inherently like deflationary and then it would make it more difficult for people to borrow money? and then pay it back reasonably well? Um, or does that so not follow? We can talk about deflation in, in two different ways. So one way that people talk about deflation is deflation of the money supply, where the money supply goes down. Mm -hmm. um, and another way is to talk about the purchasing power of yes. the money. Um, so yes, the money supply in Bitcoin is designed to go down or, or to at least never go up. Um, the purchasing uh, that, power. That, that's not quite right because there's 6.25 new Bitcoin being created every 10 minutes. Well, right. So, so the, the supply is increasing. The supply is increasing in a in a scheduled way, and then after the 21 million, there will never be any new Bitcoin added. Right. Um, but the purchasing power depends, as Andrew was talking about, on. 
the network effects and how much people value it. So mm -hmm. I, I purchased a rug from overstock.com um, back when they were one of the first merchants to accept Bitcoin and it cost me 0 0.9 Bitcoin. They gave a 5% discount because as a base settlement layer, if I were to return, I, I couldn't go to my credit card company and try to get a chargeback. That's not possible with Bitcoin. And so Overstock was willing to give a discount because they could be sure that once they got the Bitcoin, they couldn't be forced to give it back. Um, of course, that 0 0.9 Bitcoin right now is worth yeah. $55,000. And shame. my rug oh. is not worth $55,000. Um, so it, it's so a nice it holds rug. The room together, though. It really holds the room together. <laughs> um, so, so in that sense, Bitcoin's purchasing power has has skyrocketed, yeah. um, and may continue to do so. That that depends on supply and demand. What can't happen is for the government to respond to supply or demand concerns by printing more or taking some out of circulation. Um, so there there is no mechanism within the Bitcoin network to account for um, supply and demand fluctuation. The only way that that can happen is by the purchasing power rising. Or falling, and so sometimes that's that's been as much as you know, ten percent in a day. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a very egregious epistemic trespassing. I'm gonna hop the fence here, <laughs> and <Hop> my <laughs> so dude, when I'm thinking about the U.S. dollar and the purchasing power thereof, isn't I could be totally wrong here? Is there something about the valuation of that not just in terms of the supply of the amount of physical dollars out there but um it's somehow backed by like the u.s economy and like how well that's doing in these different sectors of the economy in a way it's not totally clear like what's backing the value of bitcoin or is that oh just a too dumb of a question to even break down I, I think that's an amazing and deep question. Okay. And yes, we, we will join you in the epistemic trespassing. Okay. I, I think that the strength of the U.S. economy and the might of the U.S. military does, in a certain sense, back the U.S. dollar. And here's how I would unpack that. I would say it creates persistent demand or need for the U.S. dollar. And, and here are two ways you can see that. First, a lot of people owe the United States money. That means that they have to pay it back with dollars. So they need dollars. There's demand for dollars. So when the IMF loans dollars out to developing countries and then they owe it back, they owe back dollars. So that creates demand for the dollars. Hmm. So uh, there, there's a, a way that the might of the US as a, a global hegemon creates demand for the US dollar. So that's kind of a way in which it's backed or which value is created for the US dollar. Right. Another way is that yeah. the United States imposes taxes on its own citizens. And the only way to pay those back to make good in your tax obligations is to do so with dollars. And if you don't, then men with guns will come and break down the door and take it from you. So mm -hmm. th there's a very real sense in which the dollar is backed by the might of the U.S. police force and military in that if you don't hand over dollars, you will, you will come to harm. And so you need to acquire some dollars to make good in your tax obligations. So backing is a weird word because it's, it's kind of like a spatial metaphor. Behind the curtain, there's a solid concrete yeah. wall. And it's not always clear how to unpack the metaphor. But if we had to, uh, that, that those are two initial proposals for how to do it, is that, yes, the U.S. military and police force and its power requires people to have dollars. So that's backing the dollar in a way. And then also there are obligations abroad 
denominated in U.S. dollars, which creates further backing, if you like. So the, I guess the follow-up question then would be, on that alone, it, is it just... Is, is it more of a gamble to place one's investment in Bitcoin than the U.S. dollar, given that it doesn't seem like the U.S. dollar is going anywhere based mm. on just those facts? But Bitcoin, I mean, there is no army of gun, armed gunmen that will defend the value of Bitcoin. Right. Correct. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think you know that the U.S. economy will continue to exist, that the U.S. government will continue to demand taxes. Because of that, U.S. merchants will continue to accept dollars in exchange for the goods and services that they offer. And so you can be relatively confident when you're holding U.S. dollars that they will continue to be desired by people who you want their stuff later on. So yeah. if you if you know that you want to buy a lamp next week and that the lamp costs $10 this week, you can be relatively sure that if you hang on to your $10 and go, the lamp won't be too much more or less than $10 next week. Mm -hmm. But you can also be pretty sure that if you want to buy a lamp in 10 years, or if you want to buy a car in 10 years, um, and you have the money for it now, you know that by the time you want to buy it, it's going to cost more. You know that the US is targeting roughly 2% inflation. Um, they've hovered right around that. And so your money will be worth less. So consequently, people don't tend to hold on to their wealth in US dollars if they can help it. Now, a lot of people can't help it. And so this is where you get stories of people stuffing money under the mattresses. Um, if your grandparents stuffed money under the mattress and then gave it to you much, much later, it would be worth a lot less. It's purchasing power from when you got it would be much less than it's purchasing power from when mm -hmm. they first stuffed it under the mattress. So yeah, it sure. used to be that you could put it in uh, a savings account that would give you four or so percent interest. That's no longer the case. So people who have access to other investments use the stock market as a way of storing value, trusting that the US economy is captured by the stock market, and they're buying a share of the US economy, which will continue to grow and, and pump out more things. Um, some people have thought, well, since the purchasing power of Bitcoin will not be devalued, at least by increased supply, um, then I will put some of my wealth into Bitcoin, because I know, and there, it, it can't be the, the demand that the government has, that the people with guns have, and it can't be um, that it's backed by the US economy in the sense that, that we're talking about. Um, it has to be that you think that people will want to give you something for it later and that it will be at least as much as they would give you for, you for it now. You could price that in terms of dollars or you could price it in terms of goods and services. So right yeah. now, one Bitcoin is $58,000, which let's say is the price of a brand new fully decked out Dodge Ram. Um, if you had $58,000 right now and you wanted to Dodge Ram in 10 years, you wouldn't want to keep it in dollars because the price of the Dodge Ram is going to go up. Um, you could buy one Bitcoin with it. Um, do you think that in 10 years, someone is going to give you more than a Dodge Ram's worth of whatever you want for mm -hmm. that Bitcoin? Um, that depends on whether other people see in it the value that is being seen in it right now. 
Yeah. Um, I think they're, you know, obviously we're not investment advisors, we're philosophy professors. Right. Right. Um, but someone like Elon Musk or Michael Saylor, who have put a billion plus dollars Amazing. in Bitcoin, clearly see or clearly believe that that is going to be the right decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that speaks I'd, I'd like to have some add... confidence. Sorry, Clint, please. No, I was just, that's good to point out. Like, yeah, people have really put some skin in the game in Bitcoin. For sure. Uh, about a trillion dollars of skin as of today. That's Jeez. a lot. Yeah. I'd like yeah. to add one thing to what Brad said. He correctly pointed out that the Fed targets 2% inflation. And that's right. If we're looking at a certain kind of goods or services, roughly what's measured by the consumer price index. So this is the stuff you need to get by, food and rent. If you're looking at things of a different nature, though, the, the, the rate at which they inflate in prices is quite a bit more than 2%. And, and you can think of this just by thinking of, okay, how much does healthcare cost now versus 20 years ago? Or look at the sticker price of education. Mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, at least one of you is a father. So you need to look ahead and right. think about what college will cost for your kids 20 years from now. It will not be 2% a year of inflation. It'll be closer to 10. So for medical care, for education and also for land and housing to actually own a piece of housing that tends to go up quite a bit faster than two percent so I, I think it's totally reasonable to keep dollars in the balance sheet for the necessities of life but if you're planning ahead more than 10 years into the future and if you have things like medical care education or housing on your mind then you need to look elsewhere and, and i'm not saying you need to look at bitcoin I'm, I'm saying you need to look elsewhere. And traditionally, that's included gold, equities, right. as Brad has mentioned, and also land, a scarce we could, resource. We could each stay up till 3 a.m. and catch a gold commercial. Someone, oh, yeah. Someone encouraging oh, no. us to <laughs> buy gold, you know? Um, so and, so what is the big difference then? Why, why not get gold? And forget all the... I don't under, Someone's... I don't understand all the back-end Bitcoin. Just give me some gold. And that'll that'll do the same inflation hedging that i need it to do yeah gold has yeah. always been a, a classic inflation hedge i'll say one thing andrew and then i'll let you jump in um gold is physical it's heavy um it, most people that own gold don't physically possess the gold they own a little certificate that says that they're owed the gold um bitcoin is digital it's easy to transport it's easy to send to other people and so a lot of people when talking about bitcoin use the term gold 2.0 so it's it's mm -hmm. digital gold it's gold for the generation that grew up with phones and with email and that's comfortable um on the internet hmm. yeah, i think that that's sense. one that's one important answer here is that bitcoin has some of the properties of gold but it's digital here's another angle to think about things the supply of gold is what economists call elastic. And let me explain. Suppose the price of gold doubled tomorrow. What do you think gold miners across the world would do in reaction to that? They'd want to go find more gold. They would gold. double their efforts, roughly, mm -hmm. to find yes. more gold. Yeah. They would immediately open up mines that are closed and that are not profitable right now. Those mines would become profitable. And what, what that would mean for the supply of gold is that it would jump, not just 2% a year, which is the current rate of inflation of the supply of gold, it would jump to 4% a year or more because it's more profitable to flood the market with gold now and to find deeper and more difficult to locate uh, 
loads of gold deep in the earth. That can't happen with Bitcoin because there's a fixed supply schedule. Mining faster doesn't actually get you more of it. So even if the price of Bitcoin goes up, miners of Bitcoin can't create more Bitcoin than is scheduled. So holders of gold are actually at war with miners of gold because the holders of gold want there to be no more of it. They want it to be a scarce resource that's not increasing in supply. Mm. Whereas the miners are at war with them because they want to create more of it or to find more of it and flood the market with it. Miners of Bitcoin and holders of Bitcoin, on the other hand, are not at war. They both know that Bitcoin is provably scarce and that there can't be more of it than is already scheduled. And so there's a slightly different game theoretic dynamic at play between those who create new Bitcoin and those who hold it versus those who create new gold and those who hold it. And that has proven to be an intriguing and almost impossible to resist feature for many people who are looking to store their wealth in the long term. And by long term, I mean 10 plus years. Bitcoin fluctuates in its value, obviously, quite a bit from day to day. Yeah. But if, if you're taking the long view, then both the digitalization of gold and the fact that you're not going to war with the miners of the thing that you own right it, it's yeah. this it's a it's an attractive uh value proposition well that yeah that's fascinating man there's that just kind of brings to mind just the ways the gold industry could be perverse and and bloody if it came to it mm. the holders you know railing against the miners yeah yeah when, i think that's the plot of the movie blood diamond it's just about diamonds <laughs> but Oh, Tra tragic what what did you say is the date that the mining will cease when is that mm. 2140 so about 120 years from now or oh, 2140 yeah oh i thought we were like 20 years away. Uh -huh. no okay we're a long a way away to mine it all wow um so we've been tiptoeing in the area of like the is it good question or should mm. i get bitcoin we touched on some maybe prudential questions but maybe can we shift to the ethical and moral dimension of this? Hmm. What what is the what's the moral upshot of or or cost perhaps of getting oneself into the Bitcoin game? The, there's there's two distinct questions here. One is what's the moral upshot of the existence of Bitcoin, and then one another is what's the moral upshot of you having some Bitcoin. So um, we could ask like whether Bitcoin is good or we could ask whether it's good for you to own some Bitcoin. And those could, those could come mm -hmm. apart. Um, so usually I, I, when I think about it, I think of the Bitcoin network itself and what the moral upshots of its existence are and Bitcoin's use in general. Um, you will have, you owning Bitcoin will have very little effect on anything that Bitcoin um, brings to the table with respect to its features. So, um, but you might think, well, if, if something's bad, then I shouldn't have it. And if it's good, then I should have it or something like that. But there will be a lot more questions involved there. For example, you know, what do you hope to pass on to your kids and what are you giving up and all these other questions. So yeah. um, in terms of just Bitcoin itself, um, we've talked a little bit about privacy and about censorship resistance. Um, so Bitcoin enables you to um, transact for anything that you like without a intermediary validating those transactions and saying that it's okay for you to have that. 
So if you try to go buy something with your Visa card, Visa could say, we don't think that's okay for you to buy. Um, and we don't, we're not going to allow this. Or they might say, we don't, we don't think that you should give money to this person. So we're not going to allow it. Um, similarly with banks. So if you try to wire some money to Russian opposition leaders, um, their, their banks may say, no, they don't, they don't get to have a bank account. You can't send this money. Um, Bitcoin allows you to bypass that. There is no one who can throttle your transactions on the Bitcoin network. And so this can, of course, be used for good, and it can also be used for ill. It means that you can help out um, people who are trying to flee oppressive regimes by sending them wealth um, in a way that their government can't stop them from getting. But on the other hand, it also means that you can pay someone um, for drugs or to assassinate someone and nobody can stop you from doing that. So in that way, it's a little like physical cash. Nobody can stop you from giving a $5 bill to someone else. Um, it's less noticeable if you're traveling with large amounts of it. So mm -hmm. it's a little it's a little more difficult to seize. Um, but in that respect, it's um, it has the privacy, a lot of the privacy features, at least, of physical cash. Okay. There's an angle that we haven't brought in yet, which is the perspective not of Americans or of people in the developed world, but of approximately the other two, 2 billion people alive, 2 billion plus, who live under monetary regimes that are handled just disastrously hyperinflationary regimes. Mm, mm. For an appreciable fraction of the world's population, the only way to store their value has been in gold or in land or in US dollars. If they use their local currency, the value will be sucked out of them 10, 20, 30% a year or in hyperinflationary times even more. What Bitcoin offers people in Venezuela, for example, right now is the opportunity to buy something and to hold it on the balance sheet something that's digital that's hard to be taken away from them and that doesn't depreciate like their local currency you might say well why not just use us dollars well because venezuela doesn't want its citizens to use us dollars they do everything they can to prevent citizens from acquiring us dollars through their ordinary banking channels they close down trading pairs or regulate oh, them man. heavily or fine them or have fees and so on so we, we can speak from a position of enormous we might call it monetary privilege you know the us dollar despite our criticisms of it is still okay it's an okay way to store value for a year or two but not everyone has access to the us dollar not everyone has access to gold not everyone has access to land these are the other classical ways of storing value so if we're thinking about is bitcoin good for the world i think it would behoove us to think not just about us but about the rest of the world too and that's where I start to think that there's a serious moral case here that it is good for the world for there to be a product like this, a digital gold that can't be stopped or at least can't be stopped very easily. It may even incentivize some of those countries to be a little bit more responsible with yes. their monetary policy, knowing that there's competition out there that their citizens have access to. This does all depend on internet access to, I need to be able to access the internet to upload my transaction to the nodes. I don't know if I'm using that language. Refresh right, your ledger. Refresh the ledger. Yeah. 
Um, and some of these countries, uh, I guess my question would be, are we trying to do this too soon? Like the world doesn't, not all of the world has internet yet. We need Starlink. And would the third world countries be falling behind in a sense by like, they don't have access to the Bitcoin now. Um, will there, will that be just even more difficult in the future for them to come by a shard of the 21 million Bitcoin later? Clint, I, I would have taken that question and it would have kept me up at night 10 years ago. Here's something that's changed over the last 10, 15 years that makes me much more comfortable with Bitcoin as a proposed solution here, which is that the penetration of the mobile phone across the world is not quite complete, but it is staggering. So I'll just give you an example from my own backyard. I'm speaking here from Singapore, right across the way is Indonesia, about a quarter billion people in Indonesia. There are over a quarter billion mobile phones in Indonesia. There's more than one per person. And most of these are smartphones. That is, they're smart enough to do Bitcoin. <clears throat> this means that right in my backyard, there are a quarter billion people that have access to this new digital native gold-like product that can protect them from the mm. hyperinflation or just excessive inflation of the Indonesian rupiah, which is in fact, uh, one uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are in fact widely used in Indonesia for just this purpose. This is a way to, uh, to store mm. value that's outside of the rupiah system. And so no, uh, when, if you thought, oh, you have to have a big fancy computer to access Bitcoin, that would be a real worry. But you don't. You need a $50, just El Cheapo smartphone will do the trick now. So the other piece of the puzzle is, well, what about Internet access? Well, Internet access for mobile users is better now than ever before. And it's basically a line that only goes up and to the right. So we have yet to see that trend mm -hmm. uh, taper off. So penetration across the entire world is uh, it, it's on a very, very good trend. And this is in across sub-Saharan Africa, across all of Southeast Asia, across all of India, places where you might worry that these parts of the world will fall behind. They're actually doing very well in Internet penetration. So that, that's one thing that gives me a great deal of hope here. And in order to, this is might be required in order to transact with Bitcoin, but in order to store value in Bitcoin, you just have to access the computer once to get it. And then one more time when you want to, you know, use it for something else. So you could conceivably go to an internet cafe, buy some Bitcoin, mm -hmm. go home, wait 10 years, and then use the Bitcoin for something. And in the interim, you, you have the private key to a Bitcoin address. Nobody else has it. So the Bitcoin can't move from the address it's at to any other address. So it'll be there waiting for you when you get back on the internet again to transact with it. You can have a friend um, get some for you and write down, you know, if you trust the friend, write down your private key, stamp your private key on uh, a plate or something like that uh, and store it in some way. But you don't have to, you don't have to consistently access it. So much like your, if someone sends you an email to your email address, it'll be there whenever you go and try to check your email address. Your Bitcoin will will also be mm. there. And in fact, you have a greater assurance of your Bitcoin being there than your email being there. Because let's say you had a Gmail address. Well, Google could shut it down. But the Bitcoin ledger is stored across tens of thousands of computers all across the world. So even if Google shuts something down or one of those nodes shuts down, there are thousands of others that will keep the ledger alive and keep your Bitcoin safe. Sounds good.
You guys are making it sound really good. <laughs> what? Okay, what? Just devil's advocate. What, what would be, if, if you had to pick one, your biggest moral concern over good. just Bitcoin as a thing and perhaps owning it? For me, the one that I wrestle with these days is the environmental footprint of Bitcoin. And we haven't really spoken of this, but I think it's important to at least yeah, yeah. With a, a little bit. What's going on there? All of these computers are solving these math problems. And as Brad said, they're working away feverishly. In fact, feverish might be an, an understatement. These are, uh, I don't even know how to state it, uh, not an understatement, but just a statement. Uh, many, many millions of, take, take a personal computer, how much energy it uses. Mm -hmm. uh, that times millions is how much computing power is being used to update and protect Bitcoin network. That means that there's an enormous energy cost and accordingly a carbon footprint for at least some of that energy. So perhaps uh, between 30 to 50% of the energy used to update and protect and keep secure the Bitcoin network. Mm -hmm. 30 to 50% of that energy, that's our best guess these days comes from carbon that is burning things like coal. So this that is not making our world a better place. Burning coal does not make our world better. Maybe Bitcoin does in other respects. So any serious attempt to weigh the goods and ills of Bitcoin has to grapple with this. Now, there, there, there's, there's a lot more to say here about that, but yeah. uh, I, I'm not one of these Bitcoin boosters who thinks that, oh, it's just unequivocally good. No, I think that there are costs and benefits and we have to stack them up against each other. And one, one way to do that is to think, of, well, what are we comparing Bitcoin to? Well, comparing it to gold mining, yes. Comparing it to the energy footprint of the US dollar and the US military, which protects the US dollar. You got to stack these things up against each other. Right. And that's by no means an easy task. Really but complicated. But I, I do not think it should be ignored. And I have little tolerance for either the opponents of Bitcoin who refuse to weigh and just look at one side or the proponents of Bitcoin who refuse to weigh. I think you need to look at both sides of this mm. to, to really grapple with it morally. Mm. Well said, how about you, Brad? I think that there are a lot of concerns that one could have with Bitcoin. For example, uh, along the privacy or the censorship concerns, um, censorship resistance concerns, but I don't think any of them are unique to Bitcoin. So I think the, the energy cost of the Bitcoin network is the one thing that is indispensable to Bitcoin. Um, the more hash power is being used, the more secure the network is. And hash power, what's that? Hash power is, is directly related to energy consumption. So Bitcoin is literally turning energy into network security. Um, so it, it that incentivizes people to, to spend money using the, the energy. Um, and so this isn't something that we can say um, is, you know, going, going to happen anyway, even without Bitcoin. Like we could, you know, if criminals can't use Bitcoin, they'll use something else. They'll use US dollars as they have forever. Um, this is something, the energy concerns that are unique to Bitcoin. Um, then we have to ask, well, could, could the existence of Bitcoin in any way mitigate other energy uses? Um, if, for example, people are storing wealth in Bitcoin and not gold, could we stop mining gold? And how much does gold mining contribute to environmental problems? 
Um, it turns out quite a lot. It uses more energy. It's worse for the environment. Um, so if Bitcoin could actually replace gold, right. um, such that gold mining was no longer done, that would be a net good. Um, if Bitcoin coexists along with gold mining, well, then we have you know the worst of, of both worlds, potentially. Um, we also have to ask, what um, is there anything unique about Bitcoin's energy consumption? So one thing that's unique is when you mine gold, you have to mine where the gold is. You have to get machines to where the gold is, and then you have to dig. Bitcoin oh, mining asshole. can be done anywhere. Um, so, so far what we've seen is that Bitcoin mining incentivizes using waste energy and using uh, renewable energy. Um, it incentivizes using the very cheapest energy. And the very cheapest energy is stuff that's gonna be vented out into the atmosphere anyway. Um, so yeah, these are they're really complicated questions and they deserve a lot of discussion. Um, I'm with Andrew that anyone who dismisses the concerns, any Bitcoin proponent who thinks there's nothing there, um, or anyone who thinks that the concerns are decisive objections to Bitcoin, um, just hasn't done the, the kind of cost-benefit analysis that needs to be done to determine where we ought to morally stand on, on the environmental issue. And for me, I, I can't think of another concern that's as weighty as this one. Yeah. I'm trying to think through it. Maybe we can just linger on the, the um, criminality uh, aspect of this, that it's not unique to Bitcoin that criminals could use that the feature of privacy to do their nefarious deeds. I mean, like do that with cash. Yeah. But is there something, uh, is the problem exacerbated by the, like it is a higher degree of privacy than anything going on with the US dollar, right? And is that, posing unique problems in that space that are that should be of concern i don't think that it's any that it's any more private than um using physical us hundred dollar bills which has been the mechanism mm -hmm. of choice for terrorists and drug dealers and arms dealers for a really long time uh, in fact in some ways it's less private than that because the bitcoin blockchain has a record of every Bitcoin transaction that's ever happened mm -hmm. since the first one. Um, that doesn't happen when you transact in physical cash. So in that sense, Bitcoin is less private. Um, the So there was a news article that came out um, back in mid-January about the FBI looking into Bitcoin being used to fund the January 6th uh, mm. attempted insurrection yeah. at Capitol Hill. So they knew the identity of the person who sent the, the Bitcoin and they knew several identities of people who received it. So this was $500,000 worth of Bitcoin at the time that was sent to a bunch of different people. Um, and you know, if, if that had been done with physical cash, no one would have ever known. Hmm. Um, but because it was done with Bitcoin and you can look at some, some previous transaction histories, there are, there are in some ways more ways to identify um, users of Bitcoin than there are users of US $100 bills. There is some research on this looking at the percentage of US bills that are used for nefarious deeds and mm -hmm. what percentage of Bitcoin transactions are used for nefarious deeds. And it's an order of magnitude of difference. It's something like less than 1%. This is according to Chainalysis, which is a leading uh, blockchain mm -hmm. and analytics group. Less than 1% of Bitcoin transactions are used for terrorism, money laundering, assassination purchases, and the like. 
and something more like 10% or perhaps even more of physical dollars are used. Criminals favor physical cash for obvious reasons. You and I probably use our credit cards and IOUs and digital dollars quite a bit more than we use physical dollars. But criminals tend to use dollars more. What I would predict, and this is kind of a guess, kind of a prediction, so more epistemic trespassing, is that mm-hmm. if Bitcoin becomes more adopted, it will be used more for criminal activity and it will come to eventually be somewhere around the proportion of the US dollar that's used for criminal activity. Mm. Uh, the poor will be with us always, so yeah. also the criminal. And I don't think Bitcoin's going to make that particularly better or particularly worse should it reach wider adoption yeah. than it already has now. So, so as we wind down here, I'm maybe kind of leave our audience with a, a fun thought experiment or, or just dream together for a moment. Imagine a world, and maybe this is a bad world, it could be, but where there. there's no other currencies except Bitcoin. Let's just say Bitcoin is the deal. Like Everyone's using it. This is the standard. Is, is that a better world that we should hope for or... Would that be bad? Or do we want competition on currency? Uh, I think that would be bad. Um, oh. I think a lot of Bitcoin proponents think that that would be good. So in, in the Bitcoin community, this is called hyper-Bitcoinization, um, <laughs> where Bitcoin is is the uh, currency. Um, I, think, I think it's good for governments to have con- currencies that they control. Um, for example, I think that it's good for governments to be able to send money to people who have lost their jobs um, and who need it. And I think it's good for the government to be able to create that money out of nothing, um, to be able to stimulate the economy and have some control. Um, so I think it's it's indispensable for people at the bottom that hmm. there be government currencies. But I also think it's indispensable for people at the bottom that there be a, a safe way to store any extra that they get. So if the government gives you $1,400 and you need $800 of it for rent and $200 of it for food, and you want to save the other 400 in case you need it later, um, I think it's good that you don't have to save it in US dollars. And Mm -hmm. the people who are at the very bottom don't have uh, access to the other kinds of investments that people at the top do. So I, I I think a world where it was just Bitcoin um, would at least have that problem. I haven't thought through the the thought experiment long enough to see what benefits there might be, mm-hmm. but that's something that I, I think would be problematic. That's interesting, yeah. I think in general, competition keeps us honest, and a world without competition is not a better world. So I, I'm with Brad on this. I think having multiple competing sovereign currencies as well as, so, as, well as non-sovereign currencies, things like Bitcoin, uh, is that that's my ideal world that's the world that i would hope to see for my children great any closing thoughts as we wrap up some parting words for the audience we should say that um there is an additional member of our research collective craig warmke who teaches at niu uh, yes. and we thought uh five of us on this podcast might be too much so <laughs> so craig graciously took a step back um, but he's the one that's published the most of us in on serious academic philosophy of Bitcoin. Um, so he's got a paper called What is Bitcoin? where he gives a, sort of a, almost a scientific model style of, of Bitcoin. Um, he's got another paper called Electronic Coins, um, talking about 
how Bitcoin differs from you know physical dollars and um, all of all of his work as well as our work is available on resistance.money and you can find some of the popular stuff that we've done some other podcasts that we've been on um, and yeah yeah cool resistance.money that's the website resistance.money right. yeah and we wow. all all of our twitter presences are are pretty bitcoin focused too so okay. you can find us all on right. there I have one thought. I think many listeners may have this back, this question in the back of their mind, and it's still not answered, which is, should I buy some Bitcoin? Or if I have some, should I buy some more? Or if I have some, my yeah. God, should I sell it all? These are tough questions, and I predict they will become more feverish and present to our minds as this year unfolds. Oh, I wrote up a, a tiny piece about this. I called it vaccinating Bitcoin fever. It's at resistance.money slash fever. And I give some advice there about how to think about that question. Roughly, hmm. I think it's a tough question. And the answer is not to go buy or to sell. It's to do research. So I suggest a few books there and some questions to think about when pursuing this question on a practical level. I do not recommend to my friends uh, I'm not one of these people who says, oh, go buy, buy, buy. No, I think you need to actually read a book and think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's good. And hopefully this episode serves as a first step yeah, a little in that primer. research project for folks. Yeah. I certainly feel more comfortable. You feel better about it. Now. I could go to a party <laughs> and probably know more about it than anyone at the party. Okay. You know? Well, after one conversation. We <laughs> that's gotta, how I feel. We got a resident expert here. Yeah. Okay. This, well, not, not an expert. I could be conversational. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for helping me. <laughs> That's how we know we're still early in, in Bitcoin, that you can, you can be in yeah. one podcast and still know more than most people at a party. <laughs> I mean, I think yeah. that's true. I could be wrong. Maybe they'd be oh, a nerd right. no more. Yeah, most that's people, really helpful, most guys. people have heard of it. They understand that it has something to do with money and something to do with the internet. Yeah, yeah. That's about it. That's it. <laughs> well, really appreciate you guys taking time to come on and chat with us. Um, hopefully you guys listening, I don't know if you're working out or driving, found that helpful. Um, yeah, go to resistance.money, uh, the research collective they put together. There's a whole list of uh, resources for you to learn further about this and just keep an open mind. Let's just be open to where the evidence leads us. And we'd love to hear from you. Write in your comments or questions to mailbag at opentotruth.com. Uh, we'd love to interact with that. And if we get truly stumped, I'm sure we can ask Andrew and Brad and they'd be happy to help. That's right. Um, but yeah, thanks. And uh We'll see you guys next time.